Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You for Your Word again this morning. We thank You that in it we read of Your Son. We read of His work. We read of its importance. And we read of what it has accomplished in us. We ask that Your Spirit, He would be active here this morning, bringing life to our hearts and our minds, strengthening us, encouraging us, and convicting us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We, we have said uh, again and again throughout this series that getting Christ right is very important. Paul has been laying out his argument uh, throughout Colossians 1 and now into chapter 2, building his case for this really big vision of, of who Jesus is. All right, and this big vision of who Jesus is doesn't really fit into the normal evangelical cage we like to, like to throw Jesus into. I have these discussions all the time, not just with what we see here in Colossians, but even what we see in the Gospels. We love our, our Sunday school teachers, and this is not a shot at our Sunday school teachers, but the Jesus you find walking around in the Gospels is not the one you generally find in children's Sunday school classes. He is a very hard-to-nail-down individual. He says things all the time in the Gospels that are just downright culturally insensitive and intentionally so. And yet then at other times he turns and he is the most compassionate uh, Jesus that you could ever imagine to those you would not expect him to be. Jesus was a complicated, or is a complicated man. And so we have this big vision of Christ in Colossians. And Paul spends so much time here because when we get Jesus wrong, we tend to get everything else wrong that, that follows. And that makes sense because Paul tells us that he is the foundation that all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom are stored in this Jesus. So if you get something wrong about him, you're bound to get something else really important wrong. And so we have labored to get Jesus right here. And so the marvel of these first two chapters, though, I don't think is just this glorious big picture of Christ. Colossians 1, 15-20 is, is a wonderful passage. But the marvel to me is the relation that you and I have to that Christ, that, that Paul is moving us towards. That Christians are united to this Christ. This section in particular today is this in Christ, with Christ, that you are one with Him. Union with Christ. And this union is mysterious in some ways, but it is also essential. So much so that if you are not one with Christ, and we are not in Him, and if He is not in us, then there is no hope. This is all just made up. Then there is no hope whatsoever. The Gospel of Christ is applied and secured to you and me only in this, if you are united with the person of Christ. If you are not united with Him, nothing else matters. There's no salvation, there's no sanctification, there's no future glory or future hope. Everything hinges upon this doctrine that Christ and His people are one. So much so, that the greatest earthly blessing that God gives to mankind, the physical union of a husband and wife in marriage, that blessing, we are told, is a picture of Christ's union with His people. The oneness that a husband and wife have is ultimately pointing to the oneness of Christ and the church. 
So just as a husband and wife are one, so God's people, the church, and Christ are one. Just as a wife takes her husband's name, the church takes Christ's name. We are Christians, little Christs. The parallels could go on. And so we see in the opening verses today the importance of the incarnation. That is that Christ became human, or that God the Son took upon himself a human nature. And that there are these two sides to the incarnation, Christ's divinity and his humanity. Verse 9 says this, For in him, that's in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So you've got you to note the two sides there. The whole fullness of deity, that's divinity, of godness, so here's the God side, dwells in Christ's body, bodily. The human side of Christ. And nothing less than a Savior who is truly God and truly man can accomplish our salvation. He must be one of us. He must be human for us to be one with Him. You cannot be unified to Christ if He is not human. Christianity is not Star Wars. You're not one with the Force and the Force is one with you. There's not this mystical energy that unites the entire universe. Rather, there's a separation between the divine and the physical. And if that separation was not crossed, there is no hope. You cannot be one with God unless God adds to himself a human nature. And if he is not divine, he cannot be one with the millions and millions and millions of people that he saves. If he's just a human, then he can't save everyone. The incarnation of the Son is the foundation of our union with Him by grace through faith. So with that foundation built, we're going to spend some time here seeing who Jesus is again, and then the specifics of your and my union with Him. So this section again reminds us of the identity of Christ and His power. Look again at verses 9 through 10. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So we touched on the incarnation points here, his humanity uh, and his divinity. But it is that Jesus who fills you, it says. If you think back to last week's message, as we talked about the empty and deceptive philosophies of our day that attempt to fill us but leave us empty, the contrast here is that this Christ is the one who can actually fill you. And who is he? Well, he's God. He's God in the flesh. And he's also the head of all rule and authority. The one who fills us has all authority. Note, it's not some authority, but it is all. There is no part or parcel of this world, physical or spiritual, over which Christ does not exercise dominion and authority. He is the head. And this is a claim of authority over everything. You can think of the title that we still use today of being the head of state. What does it mean to be the head of state? In America, the head of state is the president. And he has authority in some measure, hemmed in by the different branches of government in the Constitution, but he is the head over the whole country. He is the head of state over the whole um, population. And even though some may not like this president's authority or the last president's authority or the next president's authority, 
And even though sometimes things like autonomous zones are set up or people put bumper stickers on their back of their car that says, this, not my president, stuff like that, he's still the head of state. He's, st he's still the president, whether you like him or agree with him or not. And in the same way, though some today live in rebellion to the head of all authority, though some say he's not their head, and though some deny that he has authority over them, he remains the head of all authority. What you believe about the authority doesn't impact who is actually in authority. Whether you put a bumper sticker on the back that says, Christ is not my head, it doesn't matter, he's still the head. These are his, or this is his world. This is the reality, this is who Christ is. The fullness of God dwells in him, and he is the head of all authority, and it is that Christ who fills us. And that reminds us that you will be filled with something. You will be filling yourself with something. Nature hates a vacuum. So if you remove this Christ, if you remove God as that filling agent, you will seek to fill that hole with something else. And so the question you and I have to ask ourselves is what am I seeking to fill myself with? This was what we spent so much time on last week. There are so many lies out there that promise that if you do this, if you think this way, if you feel this way, you will be filled. And if that's you this morning, I just have to ask the simple question, how's it going? Is it working out? Are you actually filled and satisfied? Is it providing what it promised? I would guess that in some moments you think that it is. The pursuit of the self, the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of relativism can be exhilarating and exciting in the moment. My other guess is, is that in your quiet moments, when the silence creeps in, especially as you get older, and that expiration date on your life creeps closer and closer, you will admit to yourself that no, it didn't really fill. We all know it. We don't like to think about it. But we know that the more we try to find meaning in the things of this world, the more the returns dwindle. The vanity becomes plain. You know it and I know it. And the only question is, when you finally realize that and admit it to yourself, will it be too late or not? Death comes for all. Rust and decay come for all God substitutes. Your emptiness will haunt you until you die unless you die in Christ. The great theologian Augustine, he put it this way in his own autobiography. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Only the infinite God can truly fill the void. So what then does it mean to be filled in this Christ? What does this union look like? Why are we unified with Christ and what happens when we are? Well, Paul's now going to give you rapid points here again and again. In Christ or with Christ. In Christ you are this. With Christ you are this. Look at verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So in Christ you and I are circumcised. And this circumcision is intentionally painted in such a way as that you are to understand that the circumcision that you have given, have been given, is greater than the one that was given to Abraham 
in Israel. Much of the controversies of the early church was over how do we take the covenant of Abraham, how do we take the covenant with Israel, and how do we apply it to this new reality in Christ? What do Gentiles have to do to be saved? Here and in Galatians, we see that some insisted that Gentiles had to first be circumcised into ethnic Israel, into Abraham, and then they could put on Christ. Then they could be unified with Christ. And Paul, here and and elsewhere, will tell you that that is not just some fine theological disagreement, but it is a whole different gospel. And it's damnable. He even goes so far as to say, I wish those people who who like circumcision would just cut the whole thing off. Not a very kind thing to say. There it is in Scripture. So instead of physical circumcision, Paul says, Christians have actually already been circumcised in a better way without hands when they are unified to Christ. That they have been given a greater reality. You see, in the Old Covenant, males were to be circumcised, showing that they, all, that they belong to God and that they are a part of God's people. But the problem is, if you're reading your Old Testament well, that that physical circumcision never actually guaranteed faith. It never guaranteed that Israel was actually going to behave like Israel. And the long, sad story of the Jews reminds us that they actually, as Christ says again and again, need to be circumcised in their hearts. That the physical act pointed to a greater act that needed to happen. And now, in Christ, Jew and Gentile are circumcised in a greater way. They have been set aside from their old self and are now aligned with Christ and are fully God's people. So how does this happen? This circumcision, your circumcision, your putting off of the old self, the flesh, how does that work? It comes through Christ's circumcision. What does that mean? I am not talking about when Christ was circumcised as a child. That's not what Paul is getting at here. But rather, that the circumcision of Christ was his sacrificial death. It was the death of his entire body. That the physical circumcision that was established with Abraham, that was prophesied to be greater, the coming in the new covenant is fulfilled in Christ's atoning death. That the death of his flesh leads to your circumcision in him. To summarize, because you are in Christ, you have been circumcised. Your status has objectively changed and in a greater way than that old circumcision could ever do. You are now aligned with Christ because you are one of his people. Paul continues this idea of being one with Christ in the first part of verse 12. It says, having been buried with him in baptism. Baptism is not the same thing as circumcision, but it also represents your union with Christ. As you are submerged under the water, it represents that with Christ you are being buried. You are dying just as your Savior died. It does you no good to die in yourself, by yourself, without Christ. So now we're getting back to this centrality of the work of Christ in his death. Back in the garden... Adam was warned that if he disobeyed, he would die. The wages of sin are death. Christ died to pay for the wages of your sin. And until death was killed by death in Christ, 
we were trapped. And so our union with Christ means that in some way, you have already died with Him. And as you look upon Christ on the cross, as He dies, you are with Him on that cross. And so baptism points to your union with Him. So much so that Paul says elsewhere in Romans 6 that the fullness of death will not hit you. Death no longer has dominion over you because it no longer has dominion over Christ. For this reason, Christians do not need to live in fear of dying. For in Christ, death has lost its sting. In Christ, you will not be hit with the fullness of death. Will you still die? Sure. But that death is being transformed in Christ. Death has lost its sting. The union with Christ doesn't stop with his death, but continues with his resurrection. Look at verse 12 and 13. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. So Paul says, not only are you dead with Jesus, but you've also been raised with Christ. He's speaking of this as an already reality. That in some way, you have already been raised with Christ. That as He rose, His people rose with Him. And this reminds us of a very important tension we find all throughout the New Testament. It's called the already and the not yet. Is that Christ has objectively already accomplished some things for you, but you have not yet received the fullness of them. You are already forgiven of your sins, and yet you have not passed through final judgment. You are already alive, and yet you are not glorified. Perhaps, we see it most fully here, that you are risen with Him, in Him, and yet, one day, you will be resurrected from the grave. You are already resurrected, and you will be resurrected. What is Paul getting at here with the already? Two things. First, The fact that Christ rose from the dead and you are in Him guarantees that you will be raised with Him. Because Christ rised and you are in Him, you will be risen again or raised from the dead. Second, there is a sense in which this new life, this being alive in Christ, has already happened. That the resurrection in some way has already broken into you. What do I mean by that? The Bible tells us that you've been given a new heart, a new mind. That in order to be saved, you must be born again. The supernatural transformation of a person's heart and mind so that they can now choose to follow Christ, that they can now choose to not sin, even though they're at war within themselves between their old self and their new self, that is a breaking in of the resurrection in you. And it all comes because you are one with Christ. How does this union with Christ happen? Paul says here, through faith in the powerful working of God. No, God does it. It's the power of God that does it. But you access it through faith. Union with Christ comes through faith. Not through the circumcision. Not through the baptism. But it comes through faith. 
Next, he moves on that in Christ, our sins are paid for. Ours is a day today where we love, absolutely love talking about justice. The whole movement around justice today cries out for it just about every day. But it's got a really twisted and and deformed definition of what justice actually is. And yet, in Scripture, justice is a very good thing, and it flows from the lawgiver, God himself. To put it another way, if there is no God, there's no such thing as justice. If there's no eternal standard of right and wrong, then there's no such thing as injustice that needs to be righted. In a world without God, justice becomes about power. And when the arms of justice become political tools of power, evil only spreads. And what often escapes many of our social justice warriors today is that justice is not only real, but justice is coming. And you may not like justice when it arrives for you. So be careful what you ask for. What Paul gets at here is that Christ died, and he died so that you might receive mercy. So that justice might be satisfied. Look at verse 14. He did this by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In the Roman world, when someone was executed, they nailed the charges, what he was guilty of, on the cross. You, you know this because of Christ, they nailed the king of the Jews above his head because they couldn't really come up with any crimes. But this was the common practice. The crime, the offense that was committed, was nailed to the cross to not only say why this person was dying, but also to deter other people from doing that same thing. Paul says, though, your sins, the crimes you have been, or that you have committed, have now been nailed to the cross because you are one with Christ. That long list of things that God should punish you for, that justice demands that you be punished for, has been nailed to the cross when Christ was nailed to the cross. Justice came for your sin, and because you are one with Christ, He took that sin, canceling the debt and the claim upon your life. God will never, ever just excuse your sin. He'll never do that, for He is just. In the very same way that we would hate to see a guilty man go free, and a judge to say, I know you're guilty, but get out. That grates against our soul, except for when it's us. God will not excuse our sin. And yet, the heart of the gospel offer is this. That he has paid for your sin. He didn't excuse it. It was taken upon his son. We live in a moral created universe. And this means that justice and wrath hang over our heads unless we are in Christ. At the cross, your Savior shows us the glories of both justice and mercy. And I don't think you should miss that. Sin is evil. Sin is dark. Sin deserves great punishment. And at the cross, you see the ugliness of sin. Because God the Father poured out His righteous wrath upon His Son. And yet on the cross, you also see the beauty of mercy. 
Christ took that for those He loved. He stood in the place of His own people. There is an inherent tension that exists between justice on the one hand and mercy. You know this, and I know this, that both of them are good. Both justice and mercy are good. And as individuals, we must have a concern for both, lest you become either a cold-hearted legalist or a relativist who lets everything go. And sadly, the social justice movement, especially in the church, has eroded the distinction between justice and mercy. They're different, and we must hold on to that. They like to quote Micah 6.8, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly, and then they butcher those definitions. It's the basic argument of Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, and I doubt he understands the full damage of what he's done by trying to erode the distinction between the two. It undercuts the beauty and the necessity of the gospel because both justice and mercy are found in one act and we are caused to look at it and say, how can this be? Justice is this. Getting what you deserve. Getting what you are owed. It is getting your due. The guilty have earned punishment. Sinners have earned and are due death from the wrath of God. Mercy, on the other hand, is this. Not getting what you deserve. Justice is getting what you have earned, what you deserve. Mercy is not getting that. Social justice movement wants to put the two together. When a person stands before a judge and begs for mercy, he is asking for what the, or less than what the law demands. And so we have at the very center of this universe a tension. Justice is good. You all know mercy is good too because you've received mercy from people again and again. If you haven't, you probably don't have any relationships left in your life. If we don't show mercy to one another, they just crumble. And so you have this contradictory thing here. Justice is getting what you deserve, and it's good. And mercy is not getting what you deserve, and it is good. How do you reconcile these things? Philosophers have been arguing about this uh, for a long time. So much so that some will just get rid of justice and some will say things like forgiveness are actually an injustice so we shouldn't do them. How do you bring the two together? Only by the blood of the Lamb. All true justice and all true mercy are rooted in the character of God and expressed through the sacrificial death of Christ. And it is this distinction between the two that is foundational to the gospel. Because you can look on the cross and say God is just because the sin has been paid for, but guess what? God is also full of mercy for someone else took my punishment, took my due. All true mercy and forgiveness are rooted in the work of Christ. For the death of Christ recognizes the evil and the ugliness that sin is and yet we also see the beauty of forgiveness and mercy. Whether it's between us and God or between one another. Finally, we see also that in Christ we are victorious. Our union with Christ brings about our victory. Verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ has disarmed and defeated and even openly shamed and mocked sin and death. 
Satan and his demons and any of his henchmen. This reference here to all or to authorities is most likely towards demons and, and whatnot. That Christ has defeated them in principle and he used the very tools that they love to do it by dying. And so he has triumphed by his blood. And those in Christ are now triumphing, conquering, overcoming this world by the blood of the Lamb and the faithfulness of their testimony. We'll discuss this a little bit more next week, but it it must be noted today that Christ has conquered. And in him and by faith, this means you have conquered. This is the end goal, the path that history is moving toward the fullness of the victory of Christ and His saints. If you're not on this side, then you are on the side that is the wrong side of history, contrary to what everyone else says. Union with Christ is our hope. It is your only hope. And this union comes through faith and faith alone. And so this morning... In its most basic sense, this is a call and an instruction to cast off anything that would prevent you from having that kind of faith. It is a call to put off those empty ideologies we talked about last week and to instead put on Christ through faith. He alone can save. He alone can rescue. So we return to the question from earlier. What are you filling yourself with? Very basic question. Are you filling yourself with drunkenness, lust, greed, anger, selfishness, the next experience, the victimhood mentality, the never-ending need for entertainment? Or are you filling yourself with Christ? There's only one of those things will offer you hope. And the big vision of Christ in Colossian here is meant to draw us in and call us to a deeper and deeper faith. To realize that the Savior you need has been provided for you and beyond all reckoning, you get to be one with Him. You get to be found in Him, in Him, in you. That everything was made by Him and for Him and that He holds all things together and that by the blood of His cross He is reconciling all things unto Himself and that you are in that Jesus. So believe on Him. For He is everything. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You this morning that in Your Word we see the good news of the death of Christ, the good news of His resurrection, and the good news of our union with Him. That if we are not one with Him, there is no hope, but that because we are one with Him, there is no reason to despair. For He has conquered. He has established our forgiveness. He has established new life in us. And that He is our all. Lord, may that be the meditation of our hearts and minds and the fuel that drives us out into all of life. It's in His name we pray. Amen.